The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. So you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this privilege to meet together in freedom in this nation. We continue to pray for our national leaders during this time of war against terrorism, that you would give them uh, wisdom, patience, and that they would have the courage to stick with the task. Father, we pray for our nation that they, too, would be willing to follow our leaders, not to become impatient, not to become distracted, not to fall prey to the idea that somehow we can get back to the way things were before September 11th. There are many things that need to be changed and addressed, not the least of which is the spiritual orientation of this nation, but there are few that seem to be uh, responding to that challenge. Father, we pray that uh, you would continue to honor the teaching of your word and that there would be those who are positive to your word that would continue to respond. Father, we pray that you would Help us to understand the things that we are studying today, that we might see how vital these truths are for our own lives, and that we might continue to be encouraged as we press on to maturity in the Christian life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 will begin about verse... 19, I think. 1 John chapter 2. This section really begins, verse 18, 18 to 27, as as we have stated many times, is the conclusion to the introduction, a long introduction in this letter that is really divided by a preface and then an introduction. And the introduction, which began back at the first part of chapter 2, is the outline of the basic issues that John will then come back to say more about in the body of this epistle. So he's introducing the major the major themes, and starting in verse 18, he is dealing specifically with 
doctrines related to the uh, growth, the spiritual growth of the immature believer. Back in verse 13, he gives the outline. He says, I'm writing to you fathers, that is spiritually mature believers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children, because you know the Father. And there we saw that that means to have come to know the Father. And because they have come to know the Father, they are born again and they have entered into a new life. Now, the problem is that these new new believers don't know much more than the gospel, so it's easy for them to get distracted. And they are distracted because they have a problem apparently related to uh, the, the overall issue that Paul outlines back in verse 12. There he stated, I am writing to you little children. This is a different term. This is the term paideon or technion, which refers to them simply as um, <coughs> Paul's, I mean, excuse me, as John's uh, congregation. It is a term of endearment to them from an elderly apostle John at this point. It says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So this is the overriding uh, theme here, and it's specifically a problem because the false teachers that are spoken of in verses 18 and 19 are teaching that Jesus is not really the Christ, that Jesus did not really appear in the flesh. They are rejecting the doctrine of the hypostatic union that Jesus is both undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person. And as a result of that, uh, they are teaching a doctrine that there is not any certainty of salvation, not any true forgiveness of sin, and that you can't really know about this in this life. So John is going to address that because this is a particular problem to the children, that is the immature believers, the paideon, mentioned in verse 18. Now, this morning we're going to close out our study of the introduction. We'll get through verse 20. We should finish up through verse 27. So let me give you an outline of these verses from 18 through 27. In chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, John gives a warning about the reality and the identification of these false teachers. There he introduces them as antichrists in verse 18. And then in verse 19, he states that they went out from us, that is, from the apostles, but they were not really of us, that is, they really didn't buy into the same doctrine that the apostles taught. Verse 19, and I can't stress this enough, verse 19 is not a soteriological statement. It is not a statement about their salvation. And that it, you will often hear that, that, that the reason John says they went out from us because they weren't really of us, he's really saying that they, they really weren't saved. But that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying they went out from us because they didn't agree with us. Once they departed, it became evident what they believed by the false teaching that they taught. They went out from us, but they were not really a part of us doctrinally. For if they had been of us, that is, in agreement with us doctrinally about the person of Christ, they would have remained with us. But they went out 
in order that it might be demonstrated that they all are not of us, that they're not in agreement with us doctrinally. So verses 18 and 19 is a warning about the reality and the identification of these false teachers. And then verses 20 through 27 describes the solution for the immature believer. What the, the spiritual uh, <coughs> solution, which is called the anointing from the Holy One in verse 20. So verse 20 introduces the subject, which is the anointing by the Holy Spirit. And we know that this must be the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple of weeks ago when I got into that, uh, I might have said something different. I was, uh, that morning, I think I barely had a voice and I barely had a brain, but uh, it's just the Holy. It doesn't say the Holy One. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit. All it says in the text is the Holy Period. And uh, that we have an anointing from the Holy. And yet in passages like Acts 10.38, anointing is always related to the Holy Spirit and the ministry of God the Holy Spirit and every other passage or place where it's mentioned in the New Testament. You have an anointing from the Holy, and you all know, and I said last time that should be translated correctly, and it is not a contrast between the false teachers and as unbelievers and the anointed as believers, but he is changing the subject. Verses 18 and 19 simply introduce the reality of the false teachers, and then he is going to take another step in the development of his of his teaching. So he says, and you have an anointing from the holy, and you know all things. That is a corrected translation based on uh, the superior translation found in the majority of manuscripts, uh, as in the um, majority text and textus receptus, and only two ancient manuscripts plus a few minor ones, only two major ones, take the position that is translated, uh, you all know, as you find in NASB or NIV, if you have that. And last time I went over the textual problems there. should be translated, you know all things, because that is the focus of the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, according to John 16:34 and other passages. That the Holy, because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit under the filling of the Spirit, we can have the potential to understand all doctrine. And we studied that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. So, verses, verse 20 outlines the subject for this section, which is the anointing. Uh, the subject is anointing at verse 27, so uh, that <clears throat> provides uh, uh, the beginning and an end. Verses 26 and 27 are going to summarize this. So verse 20 introduces the subject of the anointing. Verses 21 through 24 is going to contrast the knowledge of the truth with the lie that the false teachers are teaching. And then verses 25, 26, and 27 are going to summarize this part of the introduction. Now, the problem apparently has to do with both eternal life, the assurance, or or generally with uh, eternal life and the assurance of salvation and dealing with the problem of sins after salvation. Now, the problem of post-salvation sins has always bothered Christians. 
Ever since the uh, days of the early church, when the last apostle passed from the scene, it seems that Christians haven't been able to really understand and appreciate grace, that Christ did everything for us at salvation. So starting in the early 2nd century, the era that is called by church historians the Apostolic Fathers, not the Apostles, but the Apostolic Fathers, and they, they chose that because these guys, uh, these writers and and pastors often had connections to the apostles. They were uh, trained by <coughs> some of the apostles, but somehow they didn't quite grasp the doctrine of grace. And so you have several problems that entered in during the second and third centuries of this church. First of all, there were those who took baptism literally. That is, they thought that water baptism actually washed away sin. Now, I know that some of you have been to some of these little uh, gift shops where you see these little bars of soap and towelettes that you can get that, that say, wash away your sins. Well, that's not what, that, that, that's pretty much the idea they had in the early church is that you could, that baptism washed away your sins. And so, what you discovered was there were people who would put off believers' baptism until just before they would die because they were afraid they might commit some sin after they were baptized and not have a clean slate and get into heaven. So we laugh at them as if that were silly, but they took baptism literally. They didn't understand it as spiritual identification with Christ, and that uh, literal water baptism was simply a picture, an analogy of what took place uh, <clears throat> uh, literally in the spiritual realm. Second, there were those who introduced a second work of grace for forgiveness after salvation, and this eventually developed into a one of the seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, and that was the idea of penance. They were to confess their sins to a priest, and then uh, the priest would assign certain uh, actions depending on the severity of the sin, and that was known as penance, and penance became one of the seven sacraments, thereby uh, earning grace uh, by participating in some uh, action. Well, that's not found in the Scriptures anywhere. Scripture teaches grace. There's no intermediary other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches there is one God and one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no other uh, priests. There's no ritual priesthood in the church age. The Every single believer is a royal priest, and we have access to God directly through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to confess our sins, according to 1 John 1, 9, directly to God the Father. So there was a, a group that introduced this concept of penance and confession to a priest, and that dominated through the Middle Ages up until the Reformation. And then there was a third group who uh, came along during the Reformation, and they ignored any necessity of post-salvation cleansing. They emphasized the finished work of Christ to the exclusion of confession. And even now you will run into people and some pastors who will say uh, that confession is really uh, legalistic. That was just something they had to do uh, maybe at the early stage of the church. Uh, after all, you only find confession, the term confession, uh, related to sin mentioned one time in the New Testament, and they make a big deal about that. But what they overlook is the principle of cleansing, 
which is mentioned numerous times in the New Testament. The issue isn't confession. The issue is cleansing, and that goes back to the Old Testament. You can, and we've done this in the past, where we've traced the concept of cleansing all the way through from the Old Testament priesthood all the way to the uh, priesthood in the millennial temple, that every priest, before he functions in the temple, and remember in the church age, your body's a temple, and we're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and we are a priest. So everything's tied together for the believer in the church age, that in order for a priest to function in the temple in the Mosaic Covenant, or in Ezekiel's temple in the millennial age, there must be cleansing. Remember, the priesthood in the millennial age is um, the priests are born during that time. They have sin natures, and before they can enter into the temple, they have to perform uh, burnt offerings and sin offerings. Not for redemption, but this is their form of First John 1, 9. It is related to uh, ceremonial cleansing, not actual cleansing, but ceremonial cleansing uh, for the priest before he goes into the presence of God. So cleansing is a sta- post-salvation cleansing is a standard theme in every dispensation. And in the church age, this is accomplished through simple uh, confession of sin. So they're usually one of these three approaches that people take to post-salvation sin, and uh, very few people recognize the grace procedure. Now, this is all part of the function of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So we come to 1 John 2.21, where John says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, and here he uses, as I pointed out last time, he uses the Greek verb oida, which emphasizes the fact of absolute knowledge. They have already learned this, and they know it in their souls. It is not a. He uses oida instead of gnosko in order to emphasize the knowledge of an absolute truth. And this reminds us of John 8, 31 and 32, when Jesus said, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So there he's tying two things together that it's important to recognize. First of all, he says um, he says that we have to abide in his word. Now, later on in this very passage, we're going to come down to uh, verse 27, where he says that if you received him, you, we have the anointing which we received from him. If this abides in you, you have no need for anyone to teach you. That relates to truth. And as his anointing teaches you about all things, and it's not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So there he's going to connect abiding to teaching and learning. So, uh, G- uh, Jesus uses the same kind of terminology in John 8:31. If you abide in my word, then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So we ask the question, now we're going to introduce a diagram to explain it, how we come to know this truth absolutely in our souls. And this is what I call the grace learning spiral. Now, in in our soul, we have something which the Bible calls the thinking part of our soul. It's used, two different words are used to describe this. 
So we'll describe the thinking part of our soul with this circle. And inside this circle, there are two compartments. The overall thinking part of the soul is called the noose. That can, the word noose, which means mind in Greek, can refer to both elements. But the innermost part of the thinking part of our soul is called the heart, the cardia. And just as we use the term heart to refer to the centermost part of something, the central part of an argument, we might say the heart of an argument, we might say the heart of a tree, and we're talking about the core, the word heart in terms of its metaphor isn't something that refers to the uh, organ in our body that pumps blood, but is talking about that which is at the core of something. So this is talking about those core beliefs that a person has. So this makes up the two elements of our thinking, the noose and the cardia. Now we have a gifted individual, spiritual gift, in the church called a pastor-teacher. Now the body of Christ has numerous pastor-teachers, and God obviously has gifted these men so that we can learn the Word of God. If people could sit down and learn the Word on their own, and it would not be necessary to have these communication gifts. If people could just sit down and read the Bible and get saved, then it wouldn't be necessary to have an evangelist. Now obviously, some people do come to know um, the Lord come to salvation by just reading the Bible, and some people do learn spiritual truth by simply reading their Bible. I'm not saying you can't, but you're not going to get very far in your study of the Scriptures if you don't have a trained individual to teach you. But he doesn't operate on his own. He operates with the Holy Spirit. So the pastor-teacher communicates the truth to us, and that the Holy Spirit, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, makes it understandable to us. Now, he doesn't understand it for us. I keep emphasizing this. The Holy Spirit makes it understandable. That means that uh, that God the Holy Spirit is the divine leveler in terms of IQ. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter whether you have a Ph.D. or you barely have a uh, high school diploma or if you dropped out when you were in the eighth grade. doesn't matter whether your IQ is 100 or 150. It is spiritual truth is discerned through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. He makes it understandable. Now, he doesn't make it understandable all at once because some aspects of spiritual truth are based on other aspects of spiritual truth. Just like any field of knowledge, there are some elements of spiritual truth that are more basic and more fundamental, and there's other elements of spiritual truth that are more advanced. And so we have to master the basic information before we can then build on that to the advanced information. And so God the Holy Spirit is going to make it all understandable. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. You can understand all of the doctrines in Scripture, not today, not tomorrow, but it is there potentially because of the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So the pastor-teacher communicates, and you might not get it the first time. You might not get it the tenth time. You might get it on the fiftieth or sixtieth time, and all of a sudden it becomes clear to you. Because, you see, it's not just a matter of God the Holy Spirit making it understandable to you, but you have to understand it. 
He is not going to just dump it in your lap. He's not going to uh, chew up the spiritual food and masticate it for you. You have to do it for yourself. So he makes it understandable, but you have to understand it. That comes under the Old Testament category of of uh, meditation in the Old Testament is to think about Scripture, think about the doctrine that you've learned. You come to Bible, you come to Bible class and you you take notes and you write down your notes and then you go home and you look over the passage of Scripture again. And you look over your notes and you think about how these things relate. And maybe some of you, because you've developed some advanced Bible study skills, begin to take what you're learning today and you correlate that to what something you learned last year or the year before. And as uh, under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, he takes the things that you learned today with things that you learned the other day and puts those together, and then you begin to uh, develop and mature in your understanding of the Scripture. So it involves personal study and thought and uh, mental energy on our part. It doesn't just happen. It's not some mystical, magical thing that if I'm just filled with the Spirit, I'm going to automatically understand it. And just because you can regurgitate my words or the words of some other pastor, or just because you've heard somebody say something and it sounds good and you like it and you can repeat it, doesn't mean you understand it. Case in point, we've all had those exams when we were coming up in uh, uh, junior high or high school in chemistry or algebra or or sociology or psychology or some class like that where we really didn't understand the material at all. I remember organic chemistry was always a mystery to me. And you would just memorize these things, and then you would come to class and you would regurgitate them. And you could perhaps give a 15-minute dissertation where you sounded like you were brilliant. And you didn't have a clue what you were talking about. But you've managed to learn the vocabulary and you've heard the professor and maybe some smart students in the class talk about this enough to where you were able to simply regurgitate what they were saying. But that doesn't mean you understand it. And I've seen a lot of Christians like that over the years. And because they can uh, talk the talk, as it were, because they have uh, learned a certain amount of technical vocabulary and they've uh, listened to certain pastors long enough to where they can uh, articulate this stuff on their own, it sounds like they have a tremendous understanding. And they've deceived themselves into thinking they have a tremendous understanding. Then five or ten years down the road, you wonder where in the world those people were. You look across the other side of the church, and they're not there anymore. And uh, somehow you hear that they had a blowout in their spiritual life, and they're, you know, they're in a ditch somewhere enjoying reversionism. And you wonder, well, with all the doctrine that that guy understood, how could that happen? Well, they didn't understand it. And usually they're one of the first people to come along and say, well, you know, doctrine really doesn't work. I tried it, and it doesn't work. And what you're really saying, when you, that's the height of blasphemy, because doctrine is really the thinking of Christ. And what you're saying is that Christ doesn't work, that Christ really didn't provide everything we need, and that Christ is somehow inadequate. And so whenever you hear somebody say doctrine doesn't work, what usually is true is that they never understood it, or they never really applied it. They were just going through the motions. So when I say that the Holy Spirit makes it understandable, it's potential. There's no doctrine you can't understand. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, you're going to understand it today. It may take you a while before you really understand all of the implications of uh, infralapsarianism, sublapsarianism, or superlapsarianism. It may take you a while before you can even pronounce the words. 
But that's okay. <clears throat> you have to learn many other things before you can grapple with that. But you can understand that. It's possible for you to understand that because of the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So God the Holy Spirit makes it understandable. Then the next step is we have to, uh, once we understand it, then we have to decide whether or not we believe it. See, you can't believe what you don't understand. I see a lot of people think that. It sounds good. The pastor said it. It sounds great. I believe it. But if you don't understand, the nature of belief is something that engages the intellect in the direction of a proposition. And before you can believe it, you have to understand it. That, that has to do with the fundamental meanings of the words. Any discussion on, on faith, any discussion of belief is always directed towards understanding and then agreeing with the meaning of a proposition. You don't know if you agree with something unless you understand it. And as I've already stated, if, ju- if just because you can articulate it and just because you know the vocabulary doesn't mean you understand it. So you have to uh, understand it before you can believe it. And once you believe it, then it goes into your mind, the noose, as academic knowledge, which is called gnosis. Academic knowledge, which is called gnosis in the Greek. And once it becomes academic knowledge and you have understood it, it still isn't relevant to spiritual growth. Because now you understand it as academic knowledge, you have to exercise volition again. And you have to decide, well, the first, excuse me, the first volition is understanding it. With the filling of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit, you have to understand it, and then it becomes gnosis. And now at this point, as gnosis, you have to believe it. And when you believe it, God the Holy Spirit converts it to full knowledge, true knowledge, called epinosis in the Greek, which is usable spiritual knowledge. Now you have epinosis in your, in your cardia. But that's potential. Notice it's usable spiritual knowledge. First of all, the pastor-teacher communicates. The Holy Spirit makes it understandable. You have to exercise your volition to think about it and to understand it. Once you do, it's gnosis. Then you have to believe it. You can't believe what you don't understand. And that's when the Holy Spirit converts it into epinosis. But now it's still potential. It's usable. It's like the fact that uh, you go home and you eat a well-balanced meal and you have all the uh, nourishment, all the nutrition that you need, the various vitamins and proteins and everything else you need, but that doesn't convert to muscle. It'll become fat unless you use it. So it's potential, it's usable knowledge, and now you have to exercise your volition a third time, and that is in the direction of application. And when we exercise our volition, and, and apply doctrine under the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit as we're walking by the Spirit, that's what it is converted into spiritual growth and spiritual advance. So this explains the mechanics of how we learn and how we grow under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And this is part of the function of the anointing. As I said the last time, anointing has to do with something we receive at one point in time at the moment of salvation, it's part of positional truth, and it has to do with the potential of learning under God the Holy Spirit. 
So this is what Paul refers to when he says in verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. See, they have mastered it. It is epinosis knowledge. And so Paul refers, I mean, John refers to it as as absolute knowledge. <clears throat> they know it. They have it in their soul as epinosis. So he refers to it with the verb oida. And he says, because no lie is of the truth. Then he is going to contrast the lie with the truth in verse 22. He says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? So this is one point that the false teachers, the Antichrist, are asserting, and that is that Jesus is not the Messiah, they're saying. Jesus isn't the Messiah. Jesus is not really a true man. And Paul, I mean, John, I don't know why I keep wanting to say Paul this morning. I guess that's because we just got out of 1 Corinthians. Uh, John, John keeps saying, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And there we emphasize that in, and that Jesus has so closely identified himself with the Father. In John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. That to deny the Son is to deny the Father. To deny the Father is to deny the Son. So this is their basic message, is that they are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Then in verse 23, we read, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And I want you to po- I want to point out once again, so you don't forget it, that this is not talking about salvation. It is not talking about what happens at the instant of salvation. Remember, John is talking to believers. He is not talking to a mixed crowd. He's not talking to unbelievers and believers. He's making the point to believers. He's warning these young believers that they can be legitimately deceived by these false teachers. That's why he's going to say in verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. If it were not possible for these false teachers to deceive them, and to convince them that Jesus isn't the Messiah, then John wouldn't be writing this epistle at all. He is writing this because it's a real danger that believers can apostatize, reject the deity of Christ, reject the incarnation, and reject eternal security. Real believers can, after they're saved, end up rejecting everything they ever believed about Jesus Christ. That's the point. So what John is saying in verse 23 is whoever denies the Father or denies the Son does not have the Father. He is not saying denies the Son at the moment of salvation, but after salvation, this person denies uh, <clears throat> who the Son was. He begins to say, okay, Jesus really wasn't the Messiah. He's not really God. He was just a he was just a good man. But this person doesn't have the Father. And last time I pointed out there are several uh, senses to the meaning of the word uh, have in, in John's gospel. One meaning is to possess, such as in John 5, 12, and 13. But here it doesn't mean possess. It has the idea more of to have at one's disposal, as John uses it in John 4.11, John 5.7, and verse John 2.1, or to have or experience fellowship, as in 1 John 1, verse 3, and verse 7. 
So what John is saying here is whoever denies the Son does not have fellowship with the Father, and the one who confesses the Son, that is, admits that the Son is the Messiah, has fellowship with the Father also. Now remember, Jesus clearly stated who he was. In John 10.30, he said, I and the Father are one. Furthermore, in that context, he is talking about his relationship to the Father. He says, My sheep hear my voice in John 10.27, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So Jesus draws a parallel. Not only is he holding us in his hand, but so is the Father. Their activities are the same. To reject one is to reject the other. Now this is also related to what Jesus teaches in John chapter 12, verses 44 and 45. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. So to believe in Christ is also to believe in the Father. Verse 45, And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. See, the first verse has to do with salvation. The second verse has to do, or can be applied to sanctification. Then we have the same kind of thing in John 14:10 and 11, where he is addressing the apostles or the disciples uh, on the night before he goes to the cross. And they are believers. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. So he is showing the intimate connection between himself and the Father. To believe one, to have fellowship with one, is to have fellowship with the other. To reject one is to uh, <clears throat> break fellowship with both. Then we came to verse 24. There John says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So this is the point that he is making, is that it is doctrine. It is what you heard from the beginning. It is that message that is key to fellowship. Now remember, abiding has to do with fellowship. It's the Greek verb meno. So he starts off and he gives a command. He says, let that abide in you. And this is the present active imperative of the verb meno. And meno always has this sense of remaining and abiding, and it has the uh, connotation of fellowship. Everywhere we find this word in the Greek, there is this underlying connotation of fellowship. And we saw that in our study of, of uh, John chapter 15. So it always has lurking in the background somewhere this idea of fellowship with Christ. So he says, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. Now the present imperative here, this is a command, and when you have a command in the present tense, it always emphasizes something that should be an ongoing uh, characteristic of the believer's life. 
in contrast to a command that's in the aorist imperative. When it's in the aorist imperative, it's emphasizing priority at that point. But when it's in the present imperative, this is something that should be an ongoing quality or characteristic in our life. We are to continuously let something uh, abide or remain in us. The imperative indicates that it's not an option. This is a mandate. Now, this is the second time that we have seen in this passage the idea of God's Word abiding in the believer. It was also mentioned back in chapter uh, 2, verses 12 through 14, where it related to the young men. The Word of Christ uh, abided in them, and that indicated the fact that they had already become oriented to doctrine in their spiritual life. Now, what is it that they are to have abide in them? If we look at the passage, it says, Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And there we have a relative pronoun plus an aorist active indicative verb which expresses the object of the command. The relative clause, what, plus the verb indicates something they had heard in the past. The aorist tense is culminative, and it indicates a complete message that they had previously heard and understood. And the previous message is the message about the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, that the second person of the Trinity was incarnate in the flesh through the virgin conception and virgin birth, and that because of that he had no imputed sin, uh, no uh, imputed of, imputation of Adam's original sin. He did not have a sin nature, and he committed no personal sin, and all of that qualified him to go to the cross where he could die and pay the penalty for every sin. See, that's the ultimate issue, because if sin isn't really taken care of through the hypostatic union, then there's no certainty of eternal life and no certainty of forgiveness for sin. So John says, you're to let that abide in you. Continue to believe the message you heard from the beginning. We could paraphrase it that way. And then he uses a third-class condition to express the believer's option. He doesn't have to do this. See, in the Greek, you have three ways to express an if clause. If expresses condition. In the Greek, you have a first-class condition which assumes the reality of the condition. The idea is if and it's true. The second class condition rejects the reality of the condition. And then the third class is like what we would call a true condition. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. You have the option. So he says here, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, maybe it will, maybe it won't. See, a true believer can apostatize and reject the truth and throw away Christ, throw away uh, everything he believes about Jesus Christ, and go live in rank carnality for the rest of his life. That's the implication here. John says, if, maybe you will, maybe you won't, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, and maybe it won't, but if it does, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. It's a condition. When you sin, we stop abiding. When we have false beliefs about the person and work of Jesus Christ, it also 
breaks fellowship. It's not just a matter of committing sin. It's a matter of false doctrine. Remember, Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. That's in John 15.7. And when he says, If you abide in me, that again is a third class condition. Maybe you will abide and maybe you won't. But if you do... And my words abide in you, that is the truth of doctrine abides in you, then that has a certain application for your prayer life. Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. So the third class condition emphasizes the potential of failure in the believer's life if he rejects uh, sound doctrine and if he gets involved in carnality. Then we come to verse 25. This is the beginning of the the, uh, conclusion to this section, the summary. And this is the promise which he himself, that is Jesus Christ, made to us, the promise of eternal life. The false teachers, by virtue of the fact that they have rejected the deity, I mean the humanity of Christ, the hypostatic union, because they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they are basically saying you can't know you're saved, you can't know that you have eternal life, you can't have assurance of your salvation, and you can't have assurance of forgiveness of sin. Now listen to what John says in other passages in 1 John, as well as Jesus in the Gospel. In 1 John 5, 11, and 12, John writes, and the witness is this. This is the same word that we saw in our study in the first hour in 1 Corinthians. This is the testimony. It is a legal term of a witness on the witness stand. And the witness is this, that God has given. It is an indicative verb in the aorist tense indicating something that has happened in the past in the realm of reality. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Now, here here is an example of how John is using echo to refer to salvation. He who possesses the Son has the life. He who does not possess the Son does not have the life. That is a term related to uh, possession, not fellowship. 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So John's clear statement is that we can know with certainty that we have eternal life. We don't have to wait until the uh, end of our life to make sure we don't fall away, apostatize, commit some grievous sin, and thereby demonstrate that we didn't persevere and we weren't really saved. See, that's what the Lordship Salvation people teach. They believe that you can get to a point in your life where if you reject Christ or say that you reject Christ or if you um, commit certain sins and you don't persevere and, and continue to grow to the end of your life, then you really weren't saved. Because if you were saved, you will continue to grow. So assurance of salvation is impossible in lordship salvation. I've heard some of their uh, teachers, some of the advocates of lordship salvation asked if they can know beyond any shadow of a doubt right now today if they're going to go to heaven. And they have to say no, that there is always a shadow of a doubt because maybe they'll say, maybe I'm deceived, maybe I don't have genuine faith, and maybe I will apostatize. So I have to pray that I persevere until the very end. 
Well, that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that right now, today, you can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you're going to spend eternity in heaven. That, and that is simply by believing in Jesus Christ. And when the passage says, uh, believe in the name of the Son of God, we have seen that name is an idiom in, uh, it's a Hebraism, uh, has its roots in the Hebrew language, and it refers to the character or the essence of something. So when we believe in Jesus as the Messiah, we are believing in who he is in terms of the hypostatic union as the uh, true humanity and undiminished deity united forever in one person qualified to go to the cross and die as a substitute for our sins. So John says we can, if we believe in the name of the Son of God, we may know that we have eternal life. This is the same thing he says as one of the overriding purposes for the gospel of John. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And then in John 5:24, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Once again, you can know with certainty right now that you have eternal life. John 6:35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Once again, you can know what you believe. John 6:47, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And John 10:10, 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So in 1 John 5.25, John says, And this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. Jesus Christ had promised us eternal life, and we can know we have it now beyond any shadow of a doubt. And then we come to 1 John 2.26. John says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And the reason he is writing is because there is a very real possibility that they can be deceived by these false teachers. Genuine believers can be deceived. Genuine believers can reject Christ. Genuine believers can become Muslims. Genuine believers can become atheists. Genuine believers can reject everything they ever once believed about the Scriptures and about the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they are still saved because salvation is not based on them keeping themselves or maintaining any belief. And then John concludes by saying, And as for you, that is, you in the plural, those whom he's writing, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. And that anointing refers to everything they got at the instant of salvation in relationship to the ministries of God the Holy Spirit in the post-salvation life of the believer. You receive it at the instant of salvation, and it continues and remains with us. Now, when he says... This is the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. Abiding there isn't talking about fellowship. It's just the basic meaning of the word to continue. But see, remember I've said over and over again how John uses words that have uh, double meanings, and he will use one word because it's going to also track with it a whole a whole uh, uh, 
suitcase full of uh, of other meanings. And so when you read this, that this anointing is ours that abides in you, what's going to come with it is that concept of fellowship and that its potential is only realized when we're in fellowship with him and when we're walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So he said, as for you, the anointing which you received, and once again we have a uh, <coughs> relative clause with a neuter relative of Haas plus an aorist active indicative, or excuse me, an aorist passive, uh, excuse me, which you received, an aorist active indicative of Lombano. Aorist active indicative of Lombano, you, meaning the believers received it actively, it was an active reception at the instant of salvation. And we received that in the past with the result that it is still ours. We don't lose that anointing. It is received one time, and that is at the instant of salvation. It is received from him. This is the Greek preposition apa plus the genitive of the uh, third person uh, singular pronoun him, referring to God the Father. The apa indicates the ultimate source, that we received it ultimately from God the Father. So this anointing stays with us, and then he builds on it. He says, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. Now, when he says that, he is not saying that, well, you don't need a pastor teacher. All you need to do because you have this anointing is sit at home and read the Bible. That would be a contradiction of everything Paul teaches about the spiritual gifts and the role of the pastor teacher. What he is talking about here is the role of God, the Holy Spirit, in learning doctrine. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches, you see, it is the anointing that's related to the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that teaches you about all things. There is nothing in the Scripture that is uh, too difficult for us to understand if we're operating under the filling of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, it may be advanced doctrine, and we may not be at a point where we can understand it yet, but potentially we can understand it all. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it, that is the anointing, has taught you, you abide in him. And he concludes with that command that we are to abide in him because only when we abide in him and his word abides in us are we going to advance. And that takes us right back to our diagram on the grace learning spiral, that we have to learn doctrine from the teaching of the pastor-teacher under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, who makes it understandable. There are those two teachers, the pastor and God the Holy Spirit. Because we have God the Holy Spirit, uh, that's why uh, John says here that you have no need for anyone to teach you, because it is God the Holy Spirit who makes it understandable. But there is a need for the pastor-teacher to teach, and the Holy Spirit makes it understandable, once we exercise our volition and understand it, that becomes academic knowledge. Once it becomes academic knowledge, then we choose whether or not to believe it, and that is when the Holy Spirit transfers it into the innermost part of the thinking of our soul, the heart, our cardia, and it becomes epinosis, our usable knowledge. When we are in the filling of the Holy Spirit, His Word is abiding in us because we're abiding in Him, and then God the Holy Spirit is going to use it to produce spiritual growth. When we don't abide, then 
<clears throat> the truth is not in us, and there is no spiritual growth. There may, may be a lot of activity. We may be applying a certain amount of doctrine, like establishment truth and carnality, and so things won't be too bad in our lives. But eventually, things will start to fall apart, and we will self-destruct in our lives and in our spiritual life, especially as we come under divine discipline. So if we summarize this whole introduction from the beginning of 1 John 1.1 down through 1 John 2.27, John has continued to emphasize the principle of fellowship, that we have to stay in fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit if we're going to advance. Fellowship is broken either through sin or through false doctrine. Now, most people just think of it as sin, but the issue here is false doctrine. And if we have a false perception of the person and work of Jesus Christ, then there can't be fellowship with the Holy Spirit, can't be fellowship with God the Father, and there can't be any spiritual growth. So doctrine is important. We don't fall prey to the lie of the ecumenical movement today that, that doctrine is divisive, so let's not teach anything that's, that's too rigorous. Let's not get involved in all these little hair-splitting things like the Trinity or hypostatic union. Let's just all get together and, and enjoy our fellowship in Jesus because we've all had some kind of experience. And that's what's going on in about 99% of the churches, and nobody knows anything, and they're wallowing in carnality. There is no spirituality there because there's no correct understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so there can only be fellowship when there is that correct understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, starting in the next verse, in 1 John 2.28, John is going to start getting into the main message to these believers, which has to do with encouraging them to advance to spiritual maturity. And we'll start that when I come back from the trip and after our Bible conference next uh, weekend with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word and that as we abide in Christ through fellowship and through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and by uh, abiding in your word, we know that the Holy Spirit is taking these things and making them profitable and usable for our spiritual growth. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who perhaps is, is here and they're, they're not saved. They're unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny. Right now, you have the opportunity to make your destiny sure and certain. You can know, as we studied this morning, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your destiny is heaven. The issue is what you believe about Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches that he... he was crucified for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And that on the basis of his death, burial, and resurrection, our sins were paid for. They were paid for on the cross. And his resurrection is to show that he has accomplished the victory over both spiritual death and physical death. Salvation is therefore not on the basis of anything that you do or that you haven't done, but is on the basis of faith or trust and the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand the things that we have studied today, that we would uh, take the time, the discipline to think about them, that they would become epinosis in our soul so that we might use it and apply it in our spiritual life, that we might continue to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.